everybody, welcome back. I am Larry Wilmore, and this is Black on the Air. Right at the end of 2017, we're almost at the end, we're going to have the best of uh, podcasts next week. Today, I'm going to be talking to Ezra Klein, editor-at-large, I believe is his title, over at Vox.com. Man, you talk about a, a wonky, smart guy. That's I'm looking forward to that conversation. It's going to be fun. And hope you enjoy that. But um, thanks for listening, as always. Appreciate everybody out there passing it on. So much happens when we're down for like a week, you know. What I pretty much like to do here, if possible, is like kind of do three weeks in a row and then down for a week. But that week that you're down, so much stuff goes on. And so when I come back, it's always a challenge of, oh, man, should I still talk about what just happened? So there's a couple of things about what just happened. But today, the biggest thing is, as I'm uh, recording this, is uh, this big tax cut bill that Republicans are pushing through um, Congress right now. And president will probably sign it pretty soon. Democrats are pretty upset about it. <sighs> my, it my issue on this. I'm not like tax taxes don't rile me as much as it does a lot of people. Like for me, I feel the term tax cut and tax hike are political terms. I really do. Like we don't discuss enough about tax rate. Like what's a good tax rate? Like tax cut and tax hike, either one of those is more of a psychological effect, like is more of an immediate thing, you know. And the way I view the economy, I think the economy is more of an organism <laughs> that has more to do with human behavior than it does have to do with hard and fast rules. You know, a lot of things that might have been effective 30 years ago might not be effective right now. Sometimes tax cuts stimulate the economy. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes it's, you know, uh, stimulus from the government that can do it. You know, each time there are different things that I believe can be a good stimulus. I do agree with people who feel like, why do we, why do these corporations need tax cuts right now? It doesn't seem doesn't seem necessary. I definitely agree with that. And one of the things where the Republicans always get away with is uh, when they try to say that um, corporations are job creators. You know, that's bullshit, you guys. Corporations are profit creators. That The purpose of a corporation and a business is to create a profit. Now, the side effect of that might be creating jobs, but they create jobs in order to create more profit. They do not create more profit in order to create more jobs. Like that's a huge distinction that they never make. There is, I'm sorry, there is no meeting ever at a board of directors where they say, uh, all right, let's talk about the last quarter. How many jobs did we create? Uh, well, <laughs> well, we didn't uh, create any jobs, but we created some profit. Damn you, Johnson. We want to create jobs here, not profit. You know, that never happens, guys. It is, it is only about profit, and jobs are a byproduct of creating profit sometimes. But sometimes that doesn't happen. Look at Apple. Apple sits on a lot of cash right now. They could be creating jobs right now, but they're sitting on that cash, you know. And whether or not these tax cuts are going to create more jobs, there's so many issues around that. It's not just the amount of money these corporations have, which, by the way, they're making record profits right now. So it's not that they need more money. And this whole issue that lowering the tax rate is going to attract them here for jobs. Well, the effective tax rate is already pretty low. That's why they hire lawyers. So they hardly pay any taxes. What's not talked about a lot is the wages that Americans demand a certain wage to live on. You know, we require a certain wage to live here in the United States of America. And the fact of the matter is, most corporations don't want to pay that wage. 
to me, that's the part that's never really talked about. That's why we have the issues about minimum wage and, you know, all these other issues. So a lot of the stuff just gets swept under the rug as far as I'm concerned. But here's the thing. Uh, the way that this thing is fought really gets me because uh, I, I hate the politics of all of this because it's so transparent to me. That's why I, I like to make distinctions about what's a political thing and what's an actual thing. Democrats are using Republican reasoning to fight this tax bill, talking about it's a burden on our deficit. That's usually traditional Republican reasoning. They're using what I call time machine arguments to argue against it, that 10 years from now, this is going to hurt people. Well, I'm sorry, but most people don't care about 10 years from now when it comes to the economy in their pocketbook. They just don't. I'm not saying it's not a good argument or it's not a worthy argument, but and it's actually a traditional Republican argument, which is, makes this whole thing disingenuous. Republicans are doing the very thing that they warned against when Obama needed money for something that was going to hurt the deficit. And on the other hand, Republicans are using Democratic strategy to get this tax bill through. Reconciliation, which is how the Democrats got Obamacare through, you know, because they know, you know, the other side, because there's this stupid political fight, you know, Republicans couldn't <laughs> couldn't show that they were voting for anything that the first black president was going to vote for. And now, you know, Democrats, of course, can't get on board with crazy Trump for obvious reasons. So all of this political stuff is bullshit. And then, you know, a lot of times the people at the bottom are just going to get hurt by this. And to me, I tell you, if it all comes back to health care, if um, things like the chip program and people getting kicked off, healthcare and all that stuff. That's the big issue. I wish people would talk about that more. And we'll see what happens. But politically, unfortunately, you guys remember when I predicted Trump would be reelected, right? And I hate these predictions. I predicted that he would be elected, and I hated that prediction, and it came true. I don't want this next one to come true. But unfortunately, I think with this tax bill going through, I don't think it's going to hurt Trump in terms of his getting reelected. On the other hand, you never know. Like the Roy Jones uh, election in, in Alabama actually may open the door for Democrats to get more seats in the House and Senate. And those are two different issues. It's, this is like when I talk about uh, what happened to the way that Democrats and Republicans use in different things. Like what happened with Obama, Obama remained a pretty popular president in terms of his numbers up or down, whatever. But the Democrats became so unpopular, and it was mainly over the politi the politicization of Obamacare, right? And the same thing might happen here. I don't know if it's going to be over the, the tax thing, because eco the economic issue is just a little different, you know? Healthcare, there were so many different issues, and some were kind of intellectual, and some were about policy that was hard for people to understand. But when people, if people see more money in their pockets immediately... I think that may be a win ultimately for the Trump administration, you know, and I don't know if the Democrats have any solid arguments about that that can help them in the short term. In the long term, we'll see what happens. But in the short term, I don't know. But uh, so we'll see what's going to happen. I hope that I'm wrong, guys, because as you know, I'm not a fan of this president. I believe that he is a narcissistic sociopath. He is the Mango Mussolini, the Nectarine Noriega the apricot Adolf. I haven't said these in a while, so I'm having fun again. The uh, orange Julius Caesar. The tangerine Idi Amin. <laughs> what was the other? The papaya papadoc, I thought was really good. The papaya papadoc. There you go. That's what he is. 
I tell you what was hilarious last week was Amarosa getting kicked out of the White House. That was hilarious, you guys. Oh, and God, I love Robin Roberts so much in ABC when she said, bye, Felicia. That was so fantastic. Amarosa is she's such a horrible human being. This is one of the hardest things to do in the world, to be such a horrible person and a horrible person to get along with that Trump actually is sympathetic in relation to Omarosa. That Trump actually has the moral high ground on Omarosa. I'm so glad she's gone. now. But I am kind of sad because now Ben Carson is Trump's only black friend. And I think that's a sad thing. You know, Droopy the dog, black Droopy the dog. Would you believe I'm Trump's only friend right now? Oh, boy. That's kind of sad. I think maybe they should bring in the black sheriff, you know, the black sheriff from Fox News. I think Trump would really love to have him as a as a new black friend. That would be fantastic. So I'll monitor that for you guys. <laughs> we'll see what happens. And finally, speaking of black friends. So <laughs> this is one of the funniest things to me is um, <laughs> this – I don't know if you guys were aware of this Twitter war that erupted between uh, the black eggheads, black intellectuals, uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates and Cornel West, where Cornel West apparently had some issues uh, where he was kind of dressing down Ta-Nehisi Coates. And basically he had issues with his not hating Whitey properly is the way that I see it. (laughs) He gives him props for hating Whitey to a certain extent. But he doesn't like his approach in how he hates Whitey. <laughs> He's unfocused in his hatred of Whitey, which really makes me laugh. You know, it's such a ridiculous argument. I mean, Cornel West, I think, is in crazy land right now. But I think his uh, his attack on Ta-Nehisi Coates, well, let me see if I can sum it up. Basically, I think his biggest problem with Ta-Nehisi Coates is that he drew a line from Malcolm X to Obama. Because Ta-Nehisi Coates, Obama really— meant a lot to him on a lot of different levels. And he kind of saw, and I'm paraphrasing, this may not be the exact characterization that he has of Obama, but I think he basically sees Obama as the true heir to Malcolm X, in maybe in terms of inspiration or legacy or or however you may see it, right? Cornel West has a lot of issues with that um, because he has a lot of problems with Obama himself as the leader of this corrupt, capitalist, imperialistic society. Unfortunately, from that point of view, there's nothing that Obama could have done outside of trying to burn down the country. <laughs> and I don't know. What do you do? I mean, that's kind of what we are. We're a capitalist, imperialist society. I don't know what Obama could have done as president to satisfy Cornel West, other than invite him to a few more parties, which a lot of people argue Cornel West is actually really upset about. But to have this attack against ta seems a bit unfocused as far as I'm concerned. It's like an East Coast, East Coast rap war, you know, like you're both on the East Coast. I don't get it. What's going on here? And I think he attacks ta for not having solutions or prescriptions. But why does ta have to have solutions? It's a, I think as an intellectual, it's okay to point out problems. I think it's our lawmakers that need to have the solutions. That's why we, uh, we vote for those people. We always try to look... For other people, other than the people we elect to have the solutions for our society, I think we got to have more accountability to voting these days, guys. Like Obama said, don't boo, vote. People have to realize how important voting actually is. It is the most important act that we have to have change happen in our society. 
You know, it's not an intellectual coming up with the correct prescription for what to do. I mean, it's nice to hear these intellectuals talk about what they feel is wrong with America. I agree with some of it. I disagree. But it's not their job to change it. It's our job as citizens to change it. And we do that by voting. That's how it happens. That's what happened with this in the black belt where, you know, we're cheering on. It was so fantastic to see how the black vote made a difference in Alabama. It wasn't anything ta had in an article, Cornell West. It was people getting out and voting and changing the nature of, of politics in that state that last time they voted for a Democrat was when it was a Dixiecrat, you know. So I think we got to keep our eyes on the prize on these types of things. And let's remember how important that is and protect that right when we see that being threatened, I think is my, my point of view on that. So anyhow, got a great interview with Ezra Klein coming up. First, let's have a quick word. All right. Okay, guys, before my talk with Ezra, I have a surprise dropping guest. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Bill Simmons of the Ringer Network, my boss. Yeah. <laughs> Basically. Not your boss. Well, you know what I mean. That's, that's you I, know. You, Bill, you are the one that hired me to do this. You asked me to do this. So, in effect. I did. Yeah. Well, I knew you'd be good at it, and I was right. I appreciate it, man. Um, Give me props. Yeah, I barged into to. Make fun of you about yes, Co- Kobe he, Knight. You're clowning me about Kobe Knight. Like, I had anything to do with Kobe Knight Kobe being a Laker double, fan. Double retirement ceremony. <laughs> so ridiculous. Well, you know you know what it is? There would be an imbalance in the jersey wall if sure. just one jersey was up there. So you had to have two jerseys. I I'm mean, surprised he didn't. They should have just retired his name. He probably would have gone for that. I think you can't say Make Kobe Beef anymore. I don't think you can. Couldn't you have can't been, say it at Staples. Yeah, why is a jersey with eight twenty four in the same why jersey? He gets two jerseys, <laughs> and then Magic Johnson, what a sellout! He's like, yeah. oh, he's the greatest Laker. I was like, no, Magic, you were the greatest Laker. That's and if it wasn't you, it's Kareem. Kobe was third. Stop it. Do you think Kobe was the third greatest Laker? Yes, Kobe mm. was never the best player in the league in any year. Mm. If you go back year by year, he was never the best player ever for any season. Even the year he won the MVP, LeBron was the best player that season. What year? 09. Kobe won in 09 because mm. people wanted Kobe to win. He won one MVP. Mm, I don't know about that. Me. I'm not being I don't, mm. don't, don't want to be it's mm. true. I don't think that's true about 09. Do, Kobe was better than LeBron in 09, definitely. The, De- definitely. the numbers say no. The eye test said no. Uh, the championship says te- yes. He had much better teammates. The championship the way, says yes. The teammates said he never thanked. Cha- I know. That was my one issue with the celebration. Okay. I don't know if you guys saw this, but you know when the Lakers— uh, <laughs> retired Kobe's jersey. My the saddest thing was he did not mention his teammates. You know he and Shaq seems, is right there. I mean, you do need five people on the court at all times. You do, you know. But look, Kobe is the last of hero ball. We can acknowledge that, right? I, I, it's, it's a level higher, a it's level higher u- than it's hero uber ball? hero ball. Yeah, but you you don't acknowledge that he won five <laughs> championships. That there was. There was an outcome to— He played with the best center of the last 20 years. Yeah. So? That, that helped. Yeah. And then the last two, I I, so I, did, I barely acknowledge. Yeah, and but he had Pau Gasol and Lamar Odom on his team and Phil oh, Jackson. Oh, stop it. They're not— And great role players. Oh, stop it. You can't say Lamar Odom and Pau Gasol. No, the last like, two were legit. Like there's Shaquille O'Neal. Shaquille O'Neal is a once-in-a-generation player. I agree with you. But Magic won all his championships with Kareem, and he never gets dinged for that, right? It's true, but Magic was a better basketball player. But and he never gets way, dinged for winning a championship with Kareem. He never won one without Kareem. Correct? 
But uh, nobody ever says, well, Magic played with Kareem. Well, he's eight, the greatest He's the greatest center of all time. We got to take it away from <laughs> Magic. He can't. Yeah, why is he called Magic? There ain't no Magic trick with playing with the greatest center of all time. That's the worst Magic trick in the world. <laughs> 88, he's by far the best player in that team. 87 Who, who Magic? Yeah, 87 88, he he's the alpha dog on those teams. Of course he was, but he still had Kareem on the team. Kareem was still being double teamed at that time. Let me ask you Triple something. Triple team before that, by the way. Larry Wilmore, instead yes. of, of having the fantastic career you've had, <laughs> yes, okay. instead you're a 6'4 shooting guard. Um, and you get to play for 15 years. Okay. No, let's make you a 6'6 small forward. Okay, I like then, that you're, then you're not yeah. you're not colliding with either guy. Yeah. Who would you have rather played with, Magic Johnson or Kobe Bryant? You well, see, you're, talk, you're talking years. to the wrong person because I am one of Magic Johnson's biggest fans in the world know, ever. But, but right? He, but, of course I would play with Magic. That was my era. In fact, I played with people who played with Magic when I was playing ball back in the day. Yeah. In fact, I sat and talked with Magic before his first day as a Laker. And but th- this should matter. Yes, but I agree that to me, Magic is the greatest Laker of all time. Be, I think he's greater than Kareem. He's the greatest. I think he's greater than Kareem in terms of being a Laker. I thought yeah. Kareem had a better career because it was longer. Well, really? but but it wasn't all Laker. But that's it was the Milwaukee thing. Bucks. That's the and thing. And then it was Lakers. Magic but in terms, was all Lakers. Yeah, but until Magic, yes, and until Magic came, Kareem really didn't have focus with the Lakers. You know, in 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 effect, Kareem was kind of like Kobe. A little bit weird. Weird. Kareem separated himself from the team. You He's know, a strange guy. He was not a team. He was not a team player on the court or off the court. Really, no. at that time, not with the Lakers. At that point, he scored thirty-five points a game. He was unstoppable. Right. But you could. The reporters couldn't talk to him at the end of the games. I mean, Kareem was not a likable person in nineteen seventy-eight, the year before Magic got on the team. Well, you remember Jim Murray. He oh, wrote a, completely. He wrote a column once. The about LA inter- Times, Jim Murray, for all He wrote a column once hmm. about interviewing Kareem's back. Yes, that's right. Because Kareem would yeah. sit in front of his locker and not, yes. and not even acknowledge the reporters. Yes, and remember when he punched, uh, who was it that he punched in the face? Kent Benson. Yes. Sucker Kent, punch. I mean, Kareem had a horrible image. Magic, yeah. Magic really uh, rehabilitated Kareem's no image. No question. In the league at that time. I think Magic was the greatest Laker of all time. I think Kareem was a slightly better basketball player, but the Milwaukee thing makes it so Here's how much of a Laker fan I am. I don't even put Kareem second as the greatest Laker. Who do you have second? Jerry West. I think think West versus Kobe is the second greatest Laker. Jerry West um, held up the Lakers. Jerry West and Elgin Baylor, by the way. Yes. But Jerry West, as the symbol of the NBA, held up the Lakers during the 60s like no one else. He and Elgin Baylor, you know. I right. mean, they went to how many straight finals? They lost to your Celtics, of course, but they had one of the best teams of all time. Well, then he was great with Wilt, too. Yes, he was. I had Jerry West is the second greatest Laker. Kareem is a great player, but he split his career with Milwaukee. West is a lifelong Laker, as Magic is. Kobe versus West is, when I did it in my book, which was 09, before yeah. Kobe added a couple other <laughs> yes. good years after that. <laughs> right. But I had West ahead of him. Yeah. And I think... The the durability of Kobe playing basically nineteen years, yeah, um, versus West, which is it's an era thing. It's a different era thing. You would rather have Kobe if you're just mm-hmm. starting a franchise and you could take either guy out of a time machine. You'd yes. rather have the nineteen Kobe years than the sure. uh, and by the way, the thirteen Jerry West, West did years. more with less than Kobe did with right. less. When Kobe had less. They barely made the playoffs. When West had less, they were in the championship. <laughs> you right. know, I mean, it was a different. He did a different. And it was thing a smaller team, worse schedule, worse travel, all that stuff. But different like, era, all West that kind a, of stuff. West had a ton of injuries and was crazy. Hamstring was a big one. Yeah, yeah. He like he would it was blow out knee ligaments, just put a brace on, keep yeah, playing. They would and, just keep playing. But Kobe 
By the way, Kobe's old school in that way. He played with so many injuries, never given the credit for the pain that he paid through. Uh, that he played through all the time. I mean, he played with his fingers deformed and uh, all kinds of things going on. I don't know what your best and chance still was is. able to shoot the ball. I don't know score. what your best chance is to get a Lifetime Achievement Award. Like, what uh-huh. what award show that would be. But if you do get one, mm-hmm. right? I would do a speech and not do not run the five minute short <laughs> that you've made months before. And make people stare at the jumbo chart. Oh, you hated the, the short I no, made with I John know, Williams. Like, terrible. how about this? Just give a speech and thank your teammates. I know he should have thanked. Thank his everybody. Teammates. Hey man, we, I we hit that. some rough times here. Oh five, oh six, oh seven. I know. And some people stuck with me and they believed in me. I don't produce me, Kobe. Then, I I root for the Lakers. I do not produce Kobe's life and his thing. But let me ask you this, Bill, since you're here. Yeah. You tweet, you didn't tweet, you text me yeah. a couple of weeks ago, yeah. and you were kind of rubbing it in my face, and you were saying that Lonzo is a bust. That was some Celtics fan shit going on right there. That was Celtics that fan was just, shit going that on. That was just me and, and you I and said, me giving you shit. And I said, no, he's not. Once his shot starts falling. Yep. Things will be different, and we're starting to see that happen. Have you changed your mind? Because and look at all of his numbers now. I never gave up on him. You never get. You call him a bust. I said he'd been a bust thus far. No, you didn't <laughs> use the word thus far. The definition of bust. Produce the, the text. No, 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 no. The definition of bust does not include the term thus far. Bust is bust. I said he's playing like a bust. You could say dis. You didn't say playing like a bust. Listen, it's 2017. Donald Trump has taught us all how to no, even no, no, if they're no, being there presented ain't no with fake facts. News here. This, the, the, this no, is black listen, and I, I, you, I know what I said. You didn't say he was a disappointment. That would have been disappointment thus far. That implies. Thus far, he was bust, playing like a bust. Bus says we're done. You messed up. Move on. Put him at the end of the bench. No, I never Move felt that way. On I was Lakers. just giving you shit. I will All say right, this okay. though: there was right. a point, I think, like two weeks ago, uh-huh. when Lonzo had missed sixty nine percent of bad. his shots. It was bad, yeah. but he was playing more than thirty two minutes a game. And I yes. went on Basketball Reference. I was like, Has anyone ever done this before? <laughs> no, I was like, No, the answer, no one has. Nobody had ever no. played five hundred no. minutes and done yes. it. This that Kobe game the other night. Yeah. That was the best I've ever seen Lonzo. Like, he was actually aggressive. Yeah, well, he did it against Cleveland and against Philly, if he, too. If he's aggressive, he's fine. If well, he's hot potato, it's Bill, he's— I, I think it's a separate issue. I honestly do. I think he's young. People don't yes. remember, Kobe barely started his first two years at the same age. Yeah. He started maybe six times in two years. Remember the Utah Airball in the playoffs? Yes, series? of course I remember yeah. that. You he's know? a baby. Yeah, Shaq was one of the people who uh, consoled him after that, you know. But— um, so he's he's not ready for the NBA in my eyes. I think my, you're right. My eye test is he's not ready. He would have been served better as another year at UCLA yep. or playing uh, coming after maybe Kuzma off the bench, you know, and leading the second unit against other second unit. I agree with and that. And getting his confidence up as a player. But I don't I personally don't think he's ready to start this year. That's my opinion. I don't he yeah. I don't think he's ready. He needs another I think he needs another two years of developing as a player before he's ready to be the type of player with his potential, who he ultimately will be. I was worried that the Does first— that sense? Yeah, no, I, I agree yeah. with you. I was worried the first 20 games were actually breaking him. I was worried, too. Every team that played him because of his dad yeah. was just like, this is a playoff game for us. We're going to destroy this kid. Oh, and his now father, I think it's. Yeah. I think his dad really did him a disservice. I, I don't I think agree. any of that was good for him. He's doing a bigger disservice to his other kids. Well, that's it. Yeah, those kids. That's, can they're going to be in a reality Can you come back years. and we can talk longer about yeah, that? Yeah, this is it. I just wanted to, say my, I wanted to congratulate no, you. No, because we need to unload about that whole issue, too, You know, because I think it's a horrible thing. And I, I don't know why people are protecting him. Like, Stephen A. does this, and some other people go, well— you know, he's a good father. Let's just let, let's just not, not no, 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 no. Yeah. I'm 
allowed to say he's a horrible father right. by taking his son out of high school and moving him to Lithuania. That's a horrible father. That is not someone who's looking at their kid's best interest. He's looking at his own best interest. Right. You don't, you know, even if you're a 28 year old person, you'd have trouble adjusting to Lithuania. Thank you're you. 17. Yes. That's crazy. Right. I wouldn't send my daughter to Lithuania for 24 hours. And I know that his kids are mixed, but that mix is not Lithuanian. You <laughs> right, know? Right. That's not the other part of them. We should They're talk not going about that. home, in other words. Yeah. I was one of the last people yes. in the LeVar corner. And, I'm and not I'm, in this corner. I'm not. I'm wavering because I was like, this dude loves his kids. I'm I okay care. with that. Now I, I feel like he loves, loves himself more. I said he was a black Trump, you know, without the oh wow, without the White House wow. and all that. Well, he, he lives on boast and braggadocio, fake news, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. You know? Well, you know what? He's, he's ESPN will beat the ball family into the ground. It's working. We have a Don't lot run. to talk about. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, we'll save for All right, so time. Bill Simmons is coming back, you guys. I'll he's, come back. He's going to – I'll be on his show. Maybe he'll be on my show. Yeah, I'm, I'm and we'll, Maybe we'll do mine. that All-Star game, too. We talked about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, we yeah. may do something in the, in yeah. the new year. That'll be yes. fun for all you sports thanks people. Thanks for 2017. Bill, thanks for stopping by, Awesome man. to have you. Thanks for having right. me here. That's my boy. Even though he's a Celtics lover. <laughs> okay, we'll be right back with Ezra Clay. everybody welcome back um i'm very happy to have the editor at large for vox vox.com <laughs> mr ezra klein ezra welcome to black on the air thank you for having me and that's editor at large now right editor at large and i think i think my folks would say and host of the ezra klein show <laughs> podcast in the weeds yes nice very very nice get get all of that out there um, oh yeah got got to got to do the self promo you got to do it, man. That's what you got to do these days. We're, we're exactly. all a brand now. Uh, I remember, I think 2004, you were blogging about uh, Bush's reelection, and you had some opinions about that um, even back I'm sure then. Sure, I did. Kind of <laughs> yes. <laughs> had a lot of opinions. Right. Um, so I, I had a blog. I was at UC Santa Cruz, uh, right. and I was just a college kid blogging about politics, right? Sure. This is a very, very intense time. It's the time of the Iraq War, it's post 9 mm-hmm. 11. It's, as you mentioned, in 04, the Bush reelection. Right. So there's a lot going on. And, and you know, I'm just really like a kid blogging about politics. Sure. But I will say, though, the place where I felt I found my voice was this must have been 2005 now. Mm-hmm. I wrote a piece, and I don't know why. But I wrote a piece about the Center for American Progress, which was then a, a brand new think tank, mm-hmm. had released a healthcare plan. And I wrote a piece kind of <clears throat> summarizing it. I read the plan, their white yeah. paper, and I, I thought about it and then like summarized how it worked and if I thought it was a good idea, why anybody would care if I thought it was a good idea is a great question. But I did. Mm-hmm. I wrote that. And then in the comments of the post, people were arguing about the Canadian healthcare system and the French system and England and waiting lines and socialism. And I thought to myself, well, shit, I don't know anything about any of these systems. So I went, I was now at UCLA Mm -hmm. and I went and I checked health policy textbooks out of the library. And I did a series where every day for a week, I wrote about how a different country's healthcare system worked. I called it the series of Health of Nations. That's awesome. And so like one day it was like the United Kingdom's healthcare system and another day it was Canada and how does it work and how does it perform and how do they pay doctors mm-hmm. and how do they insure people and like what are the measures of it? And that was one of the first things I did that felt to me like it was ended up being sort of where my career went. I began to find a voice as a policy journalist mm-hmm. And um, that, when I look back, was a kind of epiphany moment. Kind of an investigative journalist for facts. 
you know, <laughs> or here's what I'm putting that on my card, Larry. Yes. Here's what's really going on because I looked it up. Right. As opposed to it's just my opinion. Right. I think that I think the other piece of it is mm-hmm. and this really was a way in which coming into journalism from a side helped me find a voice that I think was different or, or worked for me. Mm-hmm. But I if you go to journalism school, a lot of what you learn is a journalism toolkit, mm-hmm. how to report, how to call people. It's all sure. kinds of really, really good, really how, important things. How to put a story but together, those types. Of how things, to put right? a story together, mm-hmm. all of that. Yeah. I didn't learn a lot of that till later. Uh, What I learned early on was how to research and learn about things. I mean, my training, it's almost a little bit more how an academic would work. Sure. And so it was years until I was in a place where people would return a call, right? Where even I would have thought that somebody would possibly return or pick up a call. And so one of the things that, that I learned how to do was get a lot of knowledge out of the research, really mm-hmm. develop a lot of knowledge about how an issue works right. before I began reporting on how an issue is changing. And, and that has been something that, that has held with me for a very long time. I, I see a lot of young reporters who they come onto a new beat or they're coming out of college and they, they sort of want to apply the reporter's toolkit of finding out like the thing that is breaking, right? The new story. Sure. But if you're reading textbooks, you're not finding out the new story. You're finding out the story, right? The thing that has been true now, you know, up until the moment that textbook was written, which is a couple of years ago. And I do think that journalism in general undervalues that kind of systemic evergreen knowledge and yes. overvalues the like, what just changed right now kind of knowledge. And so my, my path into journalism had that in a different balance. And I do think that balance has served me well. Yeah, it seems like uh, there's like a loss, a little bit of institutional knowledge, you know, in just how systems work. And there's more of a reaction based on positions. It seems like a lot of journalism has has become, you know, rather than reacting to a change in based on institutional knowledge of how systems work. Is that an accurate way to to describe some of this, do you think? Uh, I struggle with it, to be honest. So, mm-hmm. you know, I never want to be overly nostalgic for where we were sure, or overly optimistic about where we are. Uh, yeah. So on the one hand, you know, I'm part of a movement or a, a trend in journalism when I come in and also the, the work I've done in my career where I don't believe in traditionally like quote unquote objective journalism. Mm-hmm. I think I've, I've written for the news section of newspapers. I've written for the opinion section. I've done news analysis and I've seen how the same story can be in every place. The same story, just depending on how you formally write it. Sure. I have often thought that objective sort of like formally even handed stories mm-hmm. often make it too hard to tell the audience what is really going on. Why, why do you um, think so that's that is? One, because if you're, if you're doing something like looking at the new tax bill, right? The, right. the Republican tax bill that just passed mm-hmm. and you've done the work and you know, you've really looked into this question of say, will it increase the deficit or not? Which by and the way, is kind you, of hard to do because it, it would, it seems like maybe hard to get the actual information of the tax bill, right? Not in the in this case, I don't think so. In this case, okay. I think we can say with like perfect certainty that it will. Okay. And yet, you have to write this story where you have all these folks quoted on the Republican side who, in flagrant violation of all the evidence of like literally what the bill says, of like what the sure. entire economics profession thinks will happen, are saying, well, yeah, the thing will pay for itself, right? Like Paul Ryan says it'll pay for itself. Mitch McConnell says it'll pay for itself. Mm-hmm. And so you're somebody reading, um, and you're, you know, on the one hand, here's like some guy at Brookings you've never heard of being quoted. On the other right, hand, right. some woman at um, the Heritage who you've never heard of, and they're saying opposite things. It is very, very hard to 
tell what's true. Mm-hmm. And, and so I used to have this line that the problem with the news is it makes it too hard to tell the truth. And the problem with opinion is it makes it too easy to lie. Because yes. on the other hand, in the opinion section, they don't have to do any of the work at all, right? They can just write whatever. Um, and it's like, well, that's my opinion. And so on the one hand, I, I take your point. Uh, I do think that we have a lot of pretty bad and ungrounded opinion writing now. And so the, the feeling mm-hmm. that journalism has become suffused with these like reactionary takes. I don't think it's wrong. I think that we've really opened the floodgates on that. And on the other hand, this sort of old world um, where you couldn't say what was going on also had these really, really significant problems. And I think we often ended up misinforming people. Mm -hmm. And I I have a lot of agitation about all of it. Yeah. Uh, Did you feel any of that while you were at uh, Washington Post? Um, a bit. I mean, the Washington Post is a truly great organization. There are a couple truly great news organizations out there. The Post and the Times are certainly among them. Yeah. Um, look, did I sometimes have disagreements? Definitely. Uh, on the opinion page, for instance, George Will, who I have a lot of respect for in many ways, mm-hmm. I think writes things about climate change that are like not arguable. They're just untrue. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't. I think that's bad, but right? that's what I mean when I say sometimes I think the opinion pages have lower standards than they should. Mm-hmm. Uh, But the journalism done at the Washington Post is world-changing. And the people who are there, are many of them are the the absolute best in the field. Uh, So, you know, in general, I think that if you're you're reading the Washington Post, you're doing a pretty good job informing yourself. Yeah, I I would agree with that. Democracy Dies in Darkness is doing a pretty good job right now, especially (laughs) with, uh, I mean, they're leading the way in on a lot of these sexual assault uh, reporting that's been going on this year. And and the allegations, the Post and the Times, I guess, have been in some of the forefront of some of that investigation. Right, and and that work, I mean, that work is yeah, expensive, it's right? That, that's something sure. that I think is so important to often say, and it's mm-hmm. why I'm so happy to see people subscribing or uh, getting these digital subscriptions yeah, to the Times, to the them. Post. I mean, I pay for it. Yeah, so there you go, as am I. <laughs> well, I, I like to, I want to make sure those things stick around. That's why I pay for those things, you know. Uh, and you should, mm-hmm. right? I mean, if you mm-hmm. care, I think that that is a bad thing about the way we've come to see things on, on the internet as being like free almost by birthright. It's a if you want things thing. to survive and stick around, you, you got to pay for them. So take that story the Post did mm-hmm. on, Ray, on Roy Moore yeah. and his sexual predation of teenagers. They sent reporters down there for, I believe it was about four weeks. And the thing about that story is it might not have panned out. Mm-hmm. If they could not have gotten the right sources, if people wouldn't have talked, those reporters would have been down there for weeks and weeks and weeks. And the Post would be paying their salaries and paying their benefits and doing the whole thing. And then at the end, they might have just been like, you know what? We can't publish it. When you're doing real reporting and it happens to us at Vox all the time, sometimes you get something where you're even pretty sure the story is true, but you cannot pin it down. Mm-hmm. And it's an expensive thing, right? You, you got to pay for those misses just as you pay for the hits. And, you know, actually supporting journalism is, I, I really encourage people to do it. Why do you think there is so much resistance not just ideologically from the right against good journalism, I'll call it, you know, like that, that is unprecedented from what I've seen. And I don't mean just political. I mean, there are so many just regular people who don't even pay attention that much that have such a horrible view of reporting that Washington Post may do or or New York Times. Yeah. So I have a couple thoughts on this. Sure. Um, and I always think about the poll of 
in Alabama where 71% of Republicans thought the allegations against Moore were made up by the media. Yes, made up. And that's the key phrase there, made up. Yes. And, and remember so, the robocall that was like the fake Jewish voice or whatever it was. Oh, God, like yeah. The, it was Bernie the, Bernstein, yes, right? Yes. The anti-Semitism that was underneath it was ridiculous, too. But but, but go ahead. What is the most Jewish name we can I think know, of? I know. I know. It was... It's 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 weird they didn't say per, open parenthesis open parenthesis open parenthesis Bernie Bernstein yes, close parenthesis close parenthesis close parenthesis that, that is basically um, what they said. Yeah. So I have a couple thoughts here. One is that I, I want to acknowledge that at the core of this, uh, the, the place it metastasizes out of, mm-hmm. there is a, a reasonable mistrust of a profession that I think conservatives have felt is culturally distant from them. And I want to be careful because okay. I'm not saying it's biased against them. I actually don't culturally think that's true. Culturally distant. Uh-huh. But these, you know, these newspapers, right, the Washington Post, the, the New York Times, the LA Times, they're in these big cities. They're cosmopolitan. Uh-huh. They are overwhelmingly staffed by people who are pro-choice. They're, you know, less religious than the general population. I mean, for a long time, folks who are are, are more conservative have felt that the, the news media is biased against them. And again, I don't think it is biased against them. I actually think a lot of reporters, even when they have different opinions, work real hard to keep those opinions uh, at, at the door. Mm-hmm. But I do think it is true that they have felt that there is that it is not as naturally as sympathetic a place. And so for there's been around that mistrust, around that frustration, a pretty organized campaign among opinion leaders on the right for a very long time to talk about the biased mainstream media, to yes. undermine their basis faith, their coalition's faith in the media. And now that has gotten out of hand. Now mm-hmm. it is so far gone and they've spent so long telling their folks that, that everybody's biased against them. They actually can't control at all what they believe, right? They can't get them to believe in anything that that is actually all that factually rooted unless it comes from a source that they, they believe is 100% ideologically on their side. And so now they're getting things like Donald Trump and Roy Moore and fake news and and it's a real, real bad situation for everyone. I, mm-hmm. I think it's bad for Republicans who want their party to be a respectable, decent party. Um, you see it with a lot of these never Trumpers and even the ones who aren't never Trumpers. When you talk with Republican members of Congress privately, as I do, mm-hmm. they are often un- completely appalled. You will hear more despairing, hopeless things from them than you will hear from the Democrats because hmm. they are so upset about what is happening. That said, they are often going along with it or helping it along in many ways. It's a it's a distressing situation. But yes, there is there has been a long effort to persuade conservatives the media is biased against them. There's a kernel of truth around the fact that the media is, I think, more staffed by liberals than it is by conservatives. Mm-hmm. But I think that's different than bias. But now that has gone way, way, way far beyond. I will say, Larry, the, the one thing that I do not understand about this is why the reaction to the mistrust in the media was not to create an alternative set of media institutions like, um, you know, you could have seen it around the Wall Street Journal, around Mm -hmm. Fox News and others that would be more conservative but would hold themselves to the same high journalistic standards. Yeah. Um, Fox News has Sean Hannity and its primetime lineup. He's just become like a raving conspiracy theorist. You look at things like Breitbart, like The Daily Caller. Like these are these organizations have very weak journalistic standards. They don't, they're not trying to be as good as the New York Times. They're just not. There are, I should say, very good reporters at Fox News. And then the Wall Street Journal is in, is a really excellent news publication. Absolutely. The journal's fantastic. Yeah. The problem is it's very expensive, right? It's its business model is getting people in the business community to pay for it. Yeah. So it's not going to be 
uh, a populist um, product in the way the New York Times or the Washington Post will, even though they also have paywalls, their paywalls are, are a lot more porous and a lot cheaper. So that that's a real problem. And I put the journal in a different in a different category. Um, I think when you mention Fox News and Breitbart and some of those other arms, and arguably started with Rush Limbaugh on radio, I believe that those were more designed to be a an appendage of, let's say, the Republican Party or the conservative movement. That was uh, its, and its goal was to put more, um, you know, conservatives with everything on that checklist in office. You know, that's what it seemed like to me, and that's what Fox really became. It became more than just the balance, you know, of of feeling like the left was controlling that news arm. And that's where, to me, it got out of hand. I never really felt that as much from the Washington, from uh, the Wall Street Journal. But it does seem like that's why Fox News exists, <laughs> you know, and that— Yeah, it, I mean, look, it was run by a Republican operative. Yeah. Like, for a very long time. It, it's a very complicated institution, Fox News, I think, in ways that are interesting. Uh, and, and it has this, had this kind of balance of, like— many good journalists and many folks who are Completely. Sort of journalists in name only, sure. if they're even journalists in name only. Yeah. Um, do you think, uh, do you blame uh, any dereliction of duty at all uh, um, uh, for the press during the Obama years and how they covered him at all? Uh, when you were talking about the distress that some of the, let's call them the regular people on the right, you know, the people that aren't paying that much attention. Did it seem like he got a pass for too many things or, or does, or you don't have an opinion on that at all? Oh, I, I know. I'm, I'm, I'm sure I have an opinion on it. I'll probably need mm-hmm. to think for a minute about what it is, but I don't, I, I think that, let me try to formulate this sure. part correctly because it's a little bit of a Take your time. One. It's a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have to go to commercial. Well, we do, but it's a little different. So, there is an intuition, a feeling that Obama got more favorable coverage than, say, Donald Trump or even George W. Bush. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's true. On the other hand, I do not think the measure of whether coverage is biased or not is literally are the exact same percentage of stories about somebody negative as positive mm-hmm. if for every president. Some presidents do a better job, work harder, you know, like run a more serious, scandal-free administration. I think that was true for Obama. Um, mm-hmm. I actually think we see that right now. I mean, seriously, just like look at how the Trump administration is being run. I also think the Obama administration, and this is why I don't think the press is biased in a way that is like quote unquote liberal. The Obama administration, if you go back to say 2010 to 2012, Mm -hmm. they were just hammered all the time endlessly on the economy, on the deficit, for a period of time on the BP oil spill, which say what you want about them, but like British Petroleum fucking up a oil derrick in the Gulf of Mexico. It's like it's a weird thing to blame on the on the president. Yeah, um, like the president, the uh, he already was treated as a janitor that had to come in and clean up the mess from the Bush administration. Now he had to be the janitor yeah. for BP's oil spill as well. And, yeah. you know, and so there was, you know, and the press in, in some ways has very unusual, like the, the things where it is biased, I think, for instance, I think the press is a bias towards what is called fiscal responsibility, right? Um, in, in what do you mean? Explain calling that. it that is a bias, right? This idea that like the press hates deficits and it hates debt. The, the press might be liberally biased, but it, it's in the 
the sense of like it believes immigrants should like be able to live without fear, it believes gay mm-hmm. people should be able to get married. It's not that it believes in single payer. It actually is a sort of unusually fiscally conservative viewpoint. And the Obama administration was really caught in the thresher of that. Um, That was a very negative kind of coverage. It really changed what they were able to do and what they felt able to do. Mm -hmm. Um, And and I actually think a lot of that coverage was just like literally empirically incorrect. And I think it was damaging for the country. Um, So I, I really get why people would look at Obama and say, hey, he got more favorable coverage than George W. Bush, who lied us into a war that ended up killing hundreds of thousands of, of Iraqis, or <laughs> Donald Trump, who's like yeah. a like a maniac. Um, but I think <laughs> I think Barack Obama deserved more favorable coverage. And by the same token, yeah. I think if John Kasich had won the presidency, John Kasich would get a lot of very favorable coverage. Yeah. And actually, um, Obama was so pilloried by Fox News that I think any other coverage in response to that or put up next to that seems like favorable coverage, one could argue. But also yeah, I mean, to you get a, into this question of favorable yeah. coverage about a guy who, what, a third of the country thought was born in Kenya? Yes, exactly. You I know, mean, that's that's coverage, too. <laughs> oh, don't even get me started on that. But I think a lot of people overlook the past that the press gave George Bush with the war in Iraq, especially in the beginning. I mean, he got a full especially pass in the beginning, that. a complete pass. And uh, that, to me, led more to the reelection. Also, I believe that Americans don't like to change presidents in the middle of wars. I just, I just believe that doesn't happen. I think is a, probably a bigger overlooked issue in the reelection of, of Bush. But that's a different story, I suppose. I, I think there's something to that for sure. Yeah, we we just don't really do that type of thing. Um, so tell me about Vox, Ezra. So why did you? You're one of the founders of Vox, right? Yes. And and what was the reasoning behind that? What were you looking to do at that at the time? So, the, so my background, as we've yeah. mentioned a bit, is policy journalism. Yes. And um, I ran the Wonk blog. I, I founded and ran Wonk blog, uh, which is a policy vertical at the Washington Post. Yeah, I love, uh, I love and, that and then name. I, I came yeah. here to Vox. Thank you. Yeah. And one of the things that I found when I was doing that policy journalism over the years was that we were really pretty good, I thought, at telling you, like, what happened today in Obamacare? <laughs> right. Uh, but we were pretty bad at telling you what was Obamacare, right? Yes. If you were tuning into something midway through, which all of us are all of the time, it is really hard to catch up. Like, you start reading a newspaper Completely. story and, like, 50% of it makes sense. And yes. that is understandable, right? You know, it's expen- print is expensive, paper is expensive, ink is expensive, getting children to deliver like big packages of paper is expensive. Like the whole thing is an expensive proposition. Mm-hmm. And so you can only do so much of it. And so you make these compromises and the compromise the news traditionally made was, okay, we'll tell you what happened today or yesterday, um, but it's on you really to know what happened before. Yes. And what I saw was an opportunity to try to create, Vox is an explanatory news organization. And so what we are trying to do in our journalism is put things in context, Mm -hmm. is to take this like new nugget of news you're hearing and then give you the broader context around it, to to take the new thing that's happened in the Affordable Care Act or in the Civil War in Syria or Mm. even in the culture um, and help you understand all the other things you need to understand. And I, I often say that, um, you know, our job at Vox is like the, the new piece of news is like a puzzle piece. Mm-hmm. And like, we're the people are like, and here's what the rest of the puzzle looks like, right? It's not just like red, it's a sailboat. 
And yes. that's actually pretty hard. Um, and it requires you to build your publishing platform in different ways, requires a different workflow, mm -hmm. requires a different um, set of sort of training for your journalists about how they report and what kind of stories they choose and, and, and what they're looking for. But that was something that I, I really thought the news ecosystem could use and that, mm -hmm. you know, there was space for, for a new organization to provide. Yeah, so you're kind of creating that, as I was calling earlier, that institutional memory and providing it as a service, saying here's the context for what's going on. Right. And so even today, I mean, a lot of our work is, uh, right, like right now, for instance, I'm personally just working on a big explainer about like what is neoliberalism? Right. There's nothing mm -hmm. new, but people are using the term all the time. They're arguing about it. Uh, I don't know if you saw that there's this argument now between Cornel West and oh, Thomas Coates, and Cornel West keeps calling him a neoliberal. Yeah, I and talked so I about it like, a little bit. Yeah. I want to do a, I, I really want to like, I'm digging in uh, on what is neoliberalism and I want to give people something they can refer back to so they can understand these debates. Right. I'm not going to cover every debate that ever sure. happens about the world neoliberalism, but I want to make it possible for you to read every debate that ever happens about the word neoliberalism. Well, and they need to understand what liberalism is before you can understand That's what neoliberalism too. is. Um, and a lot of these, there's goalposts that change, I believe, in the definition of these terms as well. Oh, yes. And and what the people forget about the opposition to those positions as well. You know, like I love how, you know, Trump and a lot of conservatives in their Rosa Parks covered glasses try to take credit for <laughs> integration and those types of things, you know, with, uh, yeah, you know, these these things happened in the past and Martin Luther King and I have a dream where their side was against those things back in those days. And, you know, when they move the goalposts and, and are against, like, NFL players protesting, they forget that their side was also against the type of, of, of uh, let's call it a civilized protest that King was doing in those days and SNCC and a lot of those people, too. The same arguments were being used. So that's why I call oh, them these, these Rosa Parks covered, colored glasses, you know, that we can celebrate the past, but we resist the present. You know, it's very disingenuous. And one of the things I think is interesting about that and that is hard is that our political system and our political parties, they change themselves Correct. more readily than our allegiances to them change. Mm -hmm. And so people Absolutely. think that, you know, hey, their parents have been Republican, they're Republican, or their parents are Democrat and they're Democrat. And, and it's sort of always been this one way. And actually the parties, they, they, they shift quite a bit over time. I mean, Absolutely. the Democratic Party and Republican parties on race are really good examples. The Democratic Party is an incredibly racist party going back to you its think? early origins. The Republican Party <laughs> is Abraham Lincoln's party. Yeah. And sometimes I'll, I'll see... Actually, Which, by the way, Ezra, say, oh, wait, did you know? Uh -huh. let me stop you just Please. for a quick second. See, from my point of view, both parties were racist. Yes, that's, that's <laughs> true. That's People true. try to act like that. it was... The, the Democratic Party was just more bold about it. But it wasn't like the Republican Party was thwarted by this racist Democratic Party and couldn't integrate black people into society in 1925 like how they wanted to. Oh, if it wasn't that's for true. these racist Democrats, we could have black people be equal. Damn these Democrats, what are we going to do? <laughs> <laughs> you know, stop. It's like, that, please. That, that's completely true. It's like, but, please, but that's, America, it's only to say it. that I often see yeah. people trying to, um, they, they, they want to speak about terms in politics as if they've mm -hmm. always meant one thing. Yes. Right. As if correct. they've always been the same and they've changed a lot over the years and, and often in ways that were very self-interested on the part of the parties and the part of political actors. So even just like being clear about how a term has changed, I think can be really helpful for people to understand confusing parts of a political debate. Yeah. The Vietnam War was a bigger changer of parties 
that and uh, the uh, civil rights movement than almost any other factors, you know. Yeah. And the third part of that is the moral majority movement, I think, in the 80s, which really fundamentally, in my mind, changed the Republican Party, which um, and- it, it tied it more to the religious right than it had ever been because it really wasn't tied to that in the past. If, in fact, you could argue the Democratic Party was probably tied to more of that type of energy than the, the Republican Party was before. This is something I'm so fascinated by, the, the way in reasons parties changed. Um, mm-hmm. there, there's a political scientist, I think it's Nelson Polsby, but I could be I could have that wrong. But it makes the argument that a major factor in the changing of the parties mm-hmm. was air conditioning. Huh. Because air conditioning <laughs> allowed a lot of people to move to the Southwest. It allowed a lot of older people to move to Florida. It had all these like huge effects on on how different states and different areas changed in their party allegiance. The and as that happened, the nature of the parties changed to keep up. I mean, yeah. it's really, really interesting the way these the way these things shift under our own feet. Yeah, some also would argue that the pill changed uh, yeah. policies because women didn't need permission from their husbands to have a life anymore, you know. Yep. <laughs> the way the society was set up. So now they can become a coalition for certain issues, you know, and that changed and, a and, lot. And, you know, I was yeah. just talking this morning. Um, I just did an interview for my podcast with uh, Joe Trippi, who is a media sure. strategist sure, on Doug Joe Jones's Trippi. campaign. Yeah. And he was talking to me about how in Alabama, um, so in the 2012 election, uh, Mitt Romney won young Alabamians by right. 4%, which is not that big of a margin, by the way, for Alabama. Mm-hmm. But Doug Jones won young Alabamians by like, I think it was something in the over 20%, if I'm not wrong, uh, in the around 25%. Mm-hmm. And we were talking about how like in 20 years, as the generations change over, the politics of Alabama are, are going to be completely different. Um, now, we don't know how, right? Generations don't remain static. Right. Big events will happen in the intervening time that will change people's opinions. The parties themselves will change in ways to try to keep up with where the voters are. Mm-hmm. But the, the feeling that, you know, just places are where they are. I mean, I grew up, uh, Larry, in, in Orange County, California. Mm-hmm. And like that is the area that gave the country Richard Nixon, that gave the yes. country Ronald Reagan, right? It was, it was a very, very hardcore conservative area. I grew up right next that to That is beginning mm-hmm. to trend um, democratic now. Um, yes. California was a pretty conservative state. And yes. now it's like solidly liberal. Yeah, California voted for Reagan. I mean, it's it used to be a yeah. reliable Republican state. So I, I just, I, I think that stuff is so interesting, particularly given how, how tribal our allegiances is, you you would think it's all much more static than it really is. How much how much allegiance and change do you think is caused by charismatic leaders as opposed to actual groundswell movements? You know, like, yes, it's possible that Alabama could be the canary in the coal mine in terms of change. But also Trump, I think, is also significant as a, I'll call him a charismatic leader for want of another term right now. But you know what I'm talking about, the way Reagan was as well. In some ways, Obama was, but I don't know if Obama is the start of a movement more so a blip in maybe a (laughs) non-movement. I mean, it's sad to say, but Obama feels like a one-off to me for the Democrats, you know. I'm I'm less confident of that. I think that the coalition Obama put together, the the one that Hillary Clinton more or less held, but like didn't quite get over the finish line with. Mm-hmm. I think that coalition is going to grow and prove pretty durable. Uh, so, so let me put a pin in that. Yeah. Welcome but back I, to that. I, I want to define say, that coalition. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think the thing that I would say there is that I am 
less of a believer in like great men theories of history and, okay. and more of a sort of structuralist and events driven uh, analyst in, in the way I look at things. So mm-hmm. even some of these people were talking about like Trump and Reagan and Obama and others, or you go back to FDR, right? Who I think is considered like one of the real profoundly realigning leaders. Sure. Uh, you know, if there's no great depression, there's no FDR mm-hmm. or at least very likely there's no FDR. And certainly he's not this like unbelievably transformative person. And then if there's no World War II, like all the more so. And so one of the things I think we often do when we think about history is we mistake things that happened for the people who who were around when they happened. Mm -hmm. And obviously part of leadership is responding to things that happened in a, in a reasonable and adroit way. It's a big part. You know, I don't want to take anything away from, from the leaders who do that. But I think that, I think that the events themselves tend to be much bigger players in all this than, than we sometimes give them credit for, the, the underlying demographic changes being another. Uh, like even, mm-hmm. even with Obama, who I think is really one of the, the true once-in-a-generation political talents we have seen, Completely. if you paste his um, coalition on onto like the demographic percentages you see like 20 years before him, like he, it's like nothing, right? Like he, he can't win off of that. And so, you know, he's taken advantage of a lot of things that have happened in society around him. Yeah. And uh, it seems like even like Clinton, when he was his Clinton's arrival to me seemed more of a repudiation of the direction that the Democratic Party was heading in. And who knows, that may have caused Gore not to even be elected, where Gore was more following in the footsteps of like a Walter Mondale or even um, what's his name from Massachusetts, um, a Dukakis and that sort of thing, where Clinton at the time kind of repudiated that. He wanted to be more like Republicans, I think, when he arrived, um, even with Dick Morris in his cabinet. And I wonder if that hurt. I mean, I'm not, I think he had his, you know, an overall, I guess, successful presidency. But I wonder if that hurt where the Democrats' direction, you know, and they're still trying to find where they are and who they are. Because they seem split right now in terms of, whether they know if they're progressive or liberal or what's going on. I I think it's always been true. I I think Mm -hmm. all the parties have a lot of these continuous fights for their own souls. Yeah, Um, I I think Bush did the same thing. In terms of how much Bill Clinton ended up like wrenching the Democratic Party in a new direction, I think there's something to that. On the other hand, you know, I, I put him in this tradition of the Democratic Party at that time. You know, there were the Atari Democrats like Gary <laughs> Hart and then it was the New Democrats, right? And Al mm-hmm. Gore was a, a sort of New Democrat like Clinton. And so they had this sort of slightly more – I mean I, I really would call that uh, a neoliberal approach to uh, change in the Democratic Party. Sure. But it wasn't pure, right? I mean it, no, it had elements of the old approach in it. It had elements of a new approach in it. Um, the Republican Party I think is very much not one thing um, and hasn't been for a long time. You know, people – I often talk to folks who who – will say that they wish America had a multi-party system. And I always tell them that we do. Um, They're just contained in two parties. These two parties... I mean, you know, the Democratic Party includes Bernie Sanders, who who frames himself as a democratic socialist. It also includes, um, you know, pick your conservative Democrat, Joe Manchin, who is a very conservative West Virginia Democrat. And and it somehow is able to contain them both at the same time. Well, Bernie Sanders is an independent, though. He's not registered as a Democrat. He's not, but he caucuses with the Democrats. I mean, right. I, I know all that stuff about, about how he's registered, but... Within our political system, he's a mm-hmm. Democrat, right? He runs in the Democratic primary. You know, the the independent stuff is, a, uh, I mean, really as much of a marketing angle as anything for him. <laughs> but the way he gets power is by being a Democrat. Um, and I think he'd be, he'd, you know, say part of that too, right? Like he's he's been a pretty loyal Democrat when he was needed by the party um, mm-hmm. in the Senate and in the House before that. The, the, the presidential primary is a little bit of a different situation. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, what is your take on Obamacare right now? Do you think it it has been it has actually been dismantled with this new uh, tax bill? Because uh, so, there pro- there's a provision I, in it getting rid of the mandate, right? Yeah. So the tax bill gets rid of the mandate. You also have the Trump administration, which is not going to be paying the cost sharing reduction payments, which are a way that uh, the basically premiums and uh, not premiums, subsidies cost sharing within them are sub- are subsidized. Sure. I think that Obamacare is facing what I would call a lot of sabotage right now. Uh, and Definitely. And it, it will become a much less effective program for at least a period of years. Mm-hmm. Um, now, that doesn't mean it's going to go down to nothing. It's not the same as it being repealed. The subsidies will continue to be paid out. I think a lot of – one thing is a lot of individual states will choose to make their healthcare systems work, right? So California, which wants to have a good system, might levy their own individual mandate or there's other things they can do that will it will ensure high sign-up rates. So you're going to see a divergence between the states that actually want to have a functioning healthcare system and don't. Um, but what Republicans are not doing is taking away the basic structure or basic funding sources of Obamacare. And I think that's important. Mm-hmm. And the reason that it's important um, is even as they do kind of rip out this strut on which it rests, which is the individual mandate, and I do think that'll lead to a, a pretty significant loss of coverage for people. Mm-hmm. When Democrats win, I mean, maybe they win in 2020, let's say, um, and they have the House and the Senate, then they have all of Obamacare to build on. And uh, they it's a lot easier to either put the mandate back in or to really expand Medicaid out of Obamacare and maybe put something like Medicare onto the exchanges. And there's a lot you can do. And so I think we're going to be in a period of time over over a period of years in which the healthcare system is seesawing a little bit back and forth um, and is pretty controversial. But mm-hmm. by the same token, I think its overall movement is going to be towards um, a lot more government subsidization of insurance, probably a lot more government provision of insurance. I've said this a lot, but I think Republicans are going to regret what they did here. I think that Republicans have Which basically – A lot of parts. Um, mm-hmm. I think what one thing Republicans have done is destroy the part of the Democratic Party uh, or at least destroy the credibility that was arguing for sort of public-private hybrid systems. And they've mm-hmm. really empowered both politically and in terms of process by using budget reconciliation for everything and normalizing that. They've really empowered the sort of Sanders wing of the party that wants to just say, screw it, Medicare for all or Medicaid for all or strong public option, you know, combined with Medicare. A lot of things you can do that are pretty straightforward if you're just expanding public programs. And I think that Republicans have pushed the Democratic Party much more in a single-payer-ish direction. Whether we ever get to single-payer, I think that's a trickier question. But I think that, you know, where Hillary Clinton would have come in and she would have, like, tried to fortify Obamacare a little bit, but more or less would have been trying to keep going with this system that is, you know, quite heavily private. I think now you're going to get a Democratic Party that rather than seeing healthcare as a kind of settled issue where they're trying to make tweaks, but they're really focusing on, you know, college tuition or universal pre-K or something. Mm-hmm. Now you're going to get a Democratic Party that comes in next time and order number one isn't just going to be undoing what Donald Trump did to Obamacare, but supercharging the public program provision, the public insurance provision, mm-hmm. or adding new public insurance provision into the program. And my view on this is that in the 10-year time frame. Republicans have just really assured that a lot more people are going to have public insurance because of the main thing the individual mandate thing does is it makes the private insurance part of Obamacare way less effective. And I don't think they're going to like the long-term effects of that. It, there's so much in that soup that you just pour it out into that bowl, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> I mean, but it's so true that there's so much that the there's so much cognitive dissonance in this by the Republicans anyway. I mean, the mandate, of course, was their original idea. Um, 
that is the thing that they target first, which is the thing that kind of ensures this public-private partnership, which without that, you're absolutely correct that the Democrats would love to have more of a public provision for health care and take that part out of it. I think they are opening the door to that. I don't – but here's what I want to ask you about, get your opinion, because I have an opinion that this whole uh, tax reform bill, whatever you want to call it, I think it's not going to hurt Trump. It may have a different effect on Congress depending on what happens. But I I think Trump is different in the same way that Obama – where Obamacare didn't really hurt him, but it kind of hurt the party at the time because it hadn't been implemented yet in 2012. There was a lot of – you know, you're going to kill off granny type of talk and all those types of things. You know, what is your opinion on that? Do you think Trump gets hurt in 2020 or do you think it's more than likely that he'll come back? Because I believe and I hate my prediction. I believe he gets reelected. Look, like I, I in terms of the, the big prediction here, I would if I for some reason had to put money down today, which I would not do, uh, yes. I would bet against him. But mm-hmm. there's no doubt that it's possible he gets reelected and it's possible he won't. It's so hard to know. I mean, we might be at war with North Korea. Right. Right. Like like there might be millions dead but, from a nuclear attack by then. Like It's well, so hard for me not. to imagine 2020 right. that, uh, that, that, that it's a little bit wild. But I doubt the tax reform bill is going to be a major issue in 2020, just one way or the other. It's too far mm-hmm. out. I think that sure. people are you know, going to feel parts of it. They're going to, you know, they'll, some people will be getting money back. Some people will be getting a tax increase. Some people will be mad about the deficit. There'll be ads about how Donald Trump gave himself the big tax cut. So I think it'll hurt him on the margin. One thing that I do think will hurt Donald Trump though, um, yeah. and I do think the tax bill is part of this, and I think people really underrate it. Mm-hmm. In 2016, Donald Trump had this really rare advantage, which is that he's the only presidential candidate in memory to run for office without any kind of political record. Yes. So Hillary Clinton is there and like she is answering for like things her husband know, did, things she voted. She's like answering for three decades of American politics. And Donald Trump is literally <laughs> saying the opposite things within a single day on any issue you ask him about. And it creates yeah. this way that people project what they want onto him, right? Maybe he'll be a yeah. populist. Maybe he'll be a pragmatist. Maybe exactly. he'll be a businessman. Maybe he'll be a Republican. Like, Whatever it might be. And he was making now, their heads explode when he was like saying, uh, blaming the uh, Republicans for the war, for the Iraq war. He was totally blaming. right. He's running against the Iraq war. And so it's like Donald Trump ran this sort of like Schrodinger's cat election mm-hmm. where you you no idea what would happen. Sure. And now it's just like day by day we're open in the box and the cat is dead. Right. Correct. Like people keep opening the boxes like, oh, shit, tax cuts for rich people. Yes. I was hoping that wasn't what we <laughs> yes. were getting. And so yes. I think the thing that will hurt him overall is that he has chosen as he has like snapped his presidency into like quantum focus, right? Mm-hmm. Like instead of being many things, it has become one thing. He has chosen mm-hmm. to like run on plutocracy. And mm-hmm. I don't think that is going to be good for him. I think he's going to have to defend a record, a record that in many ways he's not even going to understand. Like That's my correct. belief, I just want somebody, I would love to do it. I have tried to get interviews with Donald Trump. I have not succeeded. I do not want to do like a hard hitting, you know, gotcha interview with Donald Trump. I would yeah. like to just sit with him and be like, can you tell me what tax rates are in your tax bill? <laughs> like that is the whole question I want to ask him. Uh, like, can you tell me how the individual mandate works? Because it's, it, and I'm not saying this to like be a jerk. Mm. He, I think really does not know. I, I've talked to people who brief him. He's not good at following the briefings. I don't even know that he is aware of the record he is building up. But, here's, um, but he's going to have to run on that record and people are going to hold him to it. No, but Ezra, here's where I take – I have a different opinion on this. Not only does he doesn't care that he doesn't know, 
the people who support him support the fact that he doesn't know. And they actually embrace that. Like they 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 will call you the elitist for being the nerdy wonk that knows all these numbers. You know, like you're the snotty yeah. elitist who's concerned with all these numbers. They'll always call me the elitist. That's why I shouldn't. Yes. That's why I'm not running for anything. But <laughs> I, but this is where I mean, this you're is the where one with I the actually, wonk blog. You know, you're the wonky elitist that knows all these nobody, numbers. Nobody's going to vote for me yeah. for anything. But I, I just want to make America great again. I don't want to make them smart again. Uh-huh. Here's my pushback on that. Go ahead. Donald Trump cannot win just with the people who like him because right. not enough people like him. Mm-hmm. So Donald Trump is he's roughly at 34 percent in the polls right now. That is a landslide loss. OK, like a terrible loss. Now, let's say that instead of being at 34 percent, he has another 10 percentage points of people like who don't really like him, but like also don't like the Democrat. Now mm-hmm. he's at 44 percent. That's two percentage points in the popular vote lower than he got in 2016. That's also a huge loss. Okay. One of the things that I think liberals get into with Trump is because they're so shocked that he ever won at all, there's this feeling that nothing can hurt him. But he's actually lost a huge amount of support. And if you even look within that 34%, a huge proportion of those people who used to say were strong approvers of Donald Trump mm-hmm. have gone down to somewhat approval. So Donald Trump actually is getting hurt by all this. There's no doubt, like Richard Nixon during Watergate, I think had a 24% <laughs> approval rating, which is not zero, right? A quarter of the country is like, yeah, I like the guy causing a constitutional crisis. That's my guy he's doing a good job (laughs) like the drunk dude who's maybe going to destroy american democracy like nobody's ever going to agree on everything but donald like donald trump cannot win the presidency with 40 percent, even though 40 percent of the country deciding he's done a great job is like a huge amount of the country and you know like is very depressing but but that's still a loss i disagree from this standpoint i think it's a focus on the wrong numbers you know I think the numbers that people vote on are economic numbers more than poll numbers. You know, for instance, I mean, the Democrats said it very clearly in 92, it's the economy, stupid. You know, with a robust economy and people have jobs with an unemployment rate that may be in the threes by then, good luck, Democrats, is what I say, you know, because it's going to be tough to make a case against a good economy. It doesn't matter. In my mind, it doesn't matter so much that it's Trump. It really matters what's happening in the economy. I think if the economy goes bad, like, for instance, I think McCain would have had a better chance to beat Obama had the economy not cratered, of course. No you doubt know, about it. In 2008, he's, he was respected. He was known. A fatal flaw, I think, was Palin. But, you know, if he was with a different candidate, it might have made a difference. But the thing that hurt him, along with Obama's charisma, of course, was the economy, you know, just the way that it helped Ross Perot kind of screw up that election for George H.W. Bush, you know, but I think a strong economy is the Democrats biggest um, opposition than I think President Trump is. That's my opinion. I think there's something to that. I mean, Mm -hmm. I I would I would make a couple points there. Mm -hmm. One is that uh, so we don't know what the economy will be. Definitely right that a strong economy will be better for Trump than a weak economy. Mm -hmm. But that's actually the thing to me about Trump right now. It is not like economic numbers don't show up in a president's approval rating in real time. If you look at when Barack Obama was unpopular, like 2010, when the economy goes up to 10% unemployment, Mm -hmm. he gets pretty unpopular, right? He goes down to, he doesn't go into the 30s, but he goes into the low 40s from having started in the high 60s. The numbers correlate with how the economy is doing, right? 
Exactly. So Donald Trump has managed to be at 34% with <laughs> a booming economy. I know. It's insane. So th- it doesn't th- make th- sense. Like, to me, I always joke that the data journalism I want to see is Donald Trump's approval numbers adjusted for economic performance. Mm-hmm. Because like, if we were in a recession, like, would he be at 10%? Like, what the hell would be happening? Here? I know. But it, it a lot of it. But here's the thing. A lot of it does not make sense. It, it makes my brain hurt when I think of it as somebody like me. I'm more of a lay person who just likes politics and I followed it for a long time. I'm certainly not an expert. I'm, I'm not letting you get away calling yourself a lay person. I am. Inter- you're, 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 you're a no, media not, elite, Larry. You're well, media elite. only that I have a, a podcast, <laughs> but I don't, I don't, I'm not, you know, I don't know these issues as well as someone like yourself. You know, I just don't have the time. I'm writing comedy most of the time. This is like my moonlighting gig, you know, <laughs> but, but I am interested in it. I'm the lay person that's interested in it. Right. Um, but I, I have to tell you, though, Ezra, my head explodes because I can't understand the correlation between I, I never I didn't know how people could vote for him, given the nasty things that he had said, like just to people like Megyn Kelly or the thing that he said about John McCain. I mean, the fact yep. that that's a Republican issue, the military and the fact that his first move out of the box, Ezra, was to say that McCain wasn't a hero and the way that he said it was so nasty and his 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 popularity rose. That makes no sense at all. You know, so there's he is like this. He's like the thing from the swamp, you know, that comes out of the water, this creature that I can't understand that has different rules. So that's why I give this X factor to it that that I and I acknowledge it's not based on um, logic or well-funded research or that type of thing. It is this other thing. I also I also think that for as you say like just like for liberals who watch Donald Trump I think actually for a lot of Republicans too mm-hmm. there's just this feeling of you can't bet against him like yes. anybody who could survive all of that well yeah. he can survive anything right like you can I hack agree. off all his arms and they'll still keep coming I agree I Mitch McConnell's in that category yeah I think it's really worrying um I, I, one of the things that I struggle with um, mm-hmm. around what you're saying is the way one of the things where Donald Trump has really changed my view of American politics. Mm-hmm is I used to think there was a bar. Uh, like you had to be like this decent to ride. Yes, I agree. That it, and if you there fell was. below the bar that your support could actually collapse. There was a bar. And I just thought that for the most part, like the parties did not nominate people below the bar. But if they did, those people might like end up, you know, in the like 30s in the popular vote. Mm-hmm. And what Donald Trump showed me was that there is no bar. That you could be... You could present yourself as just an unbelievably cruel, conspiratorial, bullying, unkind. I mean, really, like, not as a partisan question. I think Marco Rubio would have destroyed Hillary Clinton in an election. Uh, mm-hmm. I think John Kasich would have, like, won by six points. I picked so Rubio the, the early on. the point here is not – huh? I picked Rubio early on. Yeah, so did I. Mm-hmm. That was, that's who I thought would win too. But yeah. I, I, I think they would have done better than Trump. Um, and so my point here is not that there is something, you know, in Republican ideology or, or, or politics that is unpopular. I think that the way Donald Trump acted as a human being is a way you would not want to see your neighbor act, not your see your friend act, not see yeah. your employee act, not see your boss act, not see like the person who taught your kids in sixth grade, like any of it. Like you would not want to see any of it. And I would have thought that more people would have looked at him and said, I do not think this person should be president. Mm-hmm. And I have struggled a lot with the recognition that there is like some alienation I have from my countrymen on that. Mm-hmm. Well, Ezra, I want to thank you so much for being with me today. Um, I mean, God, I feel like I could talk to you for hours on these things. Uh, it's so interesting. And um, where does Vox position itself coming up in, in what's happening? Are you, is it, are you still where you 
we started in terms of your philosophy or you see yourself coming into a, a different place in the conversation right now? So, I mean, we are we are still a uh, journalism publication mm -hmm. focused on explanatory journalism. The, the thing that is different is we are doing it in many more places and many more platforms and many more ways than we ever imagined. I think that we initially Great. thought of ourselves like, well, we're going to create this website and it's going to have these cool features. But, you know, now we have this YouTube channel where we have 3 million some subscribers and mm -hmm. we are launching a daily podcast soon and have all these other podcasts, including the ones that that I run and, you know, we're coming to TV and doing all these different things. So we're trying to be, we're trying to be there to, to help explain the news, to help, help things make sense in an age when they don't make sense, wherever it is that, that people are and wherever it is that we can hopefully have a, have a positive impact. So people should, people should check us out. And, and if there's stuff um, they want us to be doing, they should let us know. Check out Vox, you guys. It's really great. I love the article you have. I'm going to send it to my daughter about, uh, <laughs> baby boomers versus millennials <laughs> it's fantastic it really makes me laugh i love i love those types of discussions you know um but it, it's really a great article really lots of great stuff coming out of vox and thanks to you ezra klein for having the vision for explanatory journalism we really need it now more than anything thanks so much for thank you larry for being back on the air ezra klein everybody thanks thanks again